What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram at talklouder underscore podcast. And of course, our website, talklouderpodcast.com, where you'll find links to our merch and all of our previous episodes. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And uh, if we seem a little giddy, uh, I think we have a good reason for that. <laughs> we have Neil Smith from the original Alice Cooper band on the Talk Louder podcast, the drummer on all those great classic hits, School's Out, Is It My Body, Under My Wheels, No More Mr. Nice Guy, Billion Dollar Babies. I mean, it goes on and on. Desperado. I mean, wow. 18. Uh, yeah, 18. I see he's got so many. I missed the biggest one of all. Um, but yeah, the drummer that played on all those songs that you still hear on the radio today, a band that set the tone and probably the benchmark by which all other cool bands are going to be measured. Uh, not only were they a great sounding band, they were a great looking band. Uh, they just reeked of attitude and swagger. And uh, just an honor to have him on the show today because he obviously is a huge influence on myself and Jason and uh, hopefully any other self-respecting rock and roll fan out there. <laughs> What'd you think, man? He was great. Neil so Smith stories. of the Alice Cooper group was just on our show. Crazy. Yeah, of course we're giddy. Of course we're strange feeling right now. Um, <laughs> that was amazing. And you know what? He was like, regular dude yeah very cool love very it. down to earth so many great stories love it uh, we couldn't not talk about alice cooper of course and we give you all kinds of great questions and answers related to that subject uh but one of the reasons he's here today is he's got a new album out called killsmith goes west and neil has been doing these killsmith records for a number of years now this is either the fourth or fifth fourth, uh, fourth. So it's a it's an ongoing series, if you will, uh, under the Killsmith theme. The latest album is called Killsmith Goes West. And on it, it's it's sort of an ode to his uh, fascination with the Wild West and the cowboy lifestyle and the and the long haul trucker lifestyle and and, uh, you know, Desperado, if you will. Yeah, uh, you know, I was going to bring up Desperado when we started in on the Killsmith smith stuff yeah because it fits that whole thing so that's that's happening uh throughout the alice years as well i think so yeah you know i didn't really think about it uh but what if you do there is some of that wild west you know i think with alice the horror theme is so in your face that you you kind of forget some of the more subtle influences and a song like Desperado, of course, is is the whole, as you like to say, lonesome cowboy thing. Yep. And um, this new album, Killsmith Goes West, is a lot of that. A lot of twang, a lot of hard boogie, a lot of Western swing. It's really cool stuff. Um, it shows that uh, Neil is much more than a drummer. Yeah, I don't, uh, we didn't even get into all of the instruments that he plays, but He's playing guitar. Uh, he's probably playing bass. Uh, he did. He did mention some of the players that he got has that he had on his records. Um, 
I don't recall their name. Sorry about that. But um, you can get the Killsmith records from Neil's website. Do you have that? Right. Yeah, neilsmithrocks.com. And it's Neil with an A, we should point yeah. out. N-E-A-L. Neil yeah, Smith it's just Rocks. by, you know, when I was setting up the folders to record this episode, I didn't even flinch. I spelled N-E-A-L Smith. You know, Neil, I, I spelled it that. And I had to, wait Wait a minute. So I, I, I checked myself, right? And I just leaned back and I went, I know that I'm right because I have read the liner notes for all of those Alice records since birth. Right. <laughs> exactly. So I know how to spell Neil Smith's fucking name. Right. It's, you know, it's right. not to be confused with other drummers named Neil. Right. <laughs> there are Which, other I know how to named? spell those too. I didn't know there was other drummers named Neil. Neil but Peer, I digress. Neil Peer, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. I'm being you're stupid. Silly. You're being silly, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Uh, see, I told you we were giddy today. Um, yeah, Neil Smith, uh, what a treat. Um, what a really cool guy, man. Um, he just, he was so gracious with his time and so willing to talk and answer questions. And I have a question for you. Yeah. I have a question for you. So yes. were you, and I think inquiring minds, listeners and watchers of the talk louder podcast would even like to know because, uh, you know, how did you. I know how you reacted. Tell us how you reacted uh, when I sort of like told you, hey, I think we're having Neil Smith from Alice Cooper Group on our show. <laughs> what was your reaction? I think, I think the first word was holy, and then I'll let you guess the second Yeah, word. well, yeah. What yeah. about, uh, what kind of, uh, what, now what do we owe Mr. Paul Unger? Uh, yes, I, uh, we, we should put that check in the mail. Uh, Paul Unger is responsible for hooking us up with Neil Smith. If we're, if we're giving credit where credit is due and we yes, should. That's so that's, um, so this is, this is a thing where Paul Unger is an old, old friend uh, of mine and now yours, Dave, and he's actually been a guest on our show. He has his yeah. own podcast. He, he, he put it this way. It's, it's much like metal Dave here. If, if uh, if Paul Unger and Metal Dave or and or Metal Dave are a fan of your band, you are a lucky band uh, because uh, Paul and Dave. We won't shut the, up about you. The kind of people that will <laughs> roll down the window in the car and at midnight yell with the music cranked up all the way, yell, "Hey, y'all need to check these fucking guys out." You know, <clears throat> you wear it on your sleeve and you tell people about it. Yeah. Uh, until they finally listen. And um, and if they like it, you 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 win. It's like a one man street team. And Paul Unger is kind of like that. So I get a <laughs> I get a message. It was probably an email from Paul uh, saying, hey, do you do you want Neil Smith on the Talk Louder podcast? I, <laughs> I, I, oh, uh, yes. Yes. You know, it was Twice. hard to just how many times do I have to say yes? as I jump up and down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how, and you know, Paul has worked with uh, Ryan Roxy and, and, you know, more current versions of the Alice Cooper band, but he um, is obviously has ties with the old band because he's such a huge uh, Coop fan. Yeah. So he's, he's in with those guys. And it's like, yeah. I don't know how or what, but it's just because, 
uh, Paul Unger is rock and roll. He loves rock and roll. And uh, thank you, Paul Unger, for uh, helping uh, spread the word of Talk Louder podcast as well as just our well-being to the world. Uh, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you, because... Holy shit, we just had Neil Smith from the Alice Cooper group here on the Talk Louder podcast. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Neil. Where are you currently sitting? Um, we're, uh, in my Connecticut home, in Connecticut here. Okay, yeah. When you said in, in your email that you were Eastern time, I thought, wait a minute, I thought he was in Arizona. <laughs> well, I am. I am the first part of the year, and then the... Most of the year I'm in Connecticut. In the summer I'm in Finland, so I'm all over the place. Oh right. wow! Nice, all right. nice. You kind of go wherever the weather's good. Then uh, I try to do. That. I saw uh, when I was a kid in high school. I was a big surf fan, and I uh, and, and and of course then the English invasion happened, the British invasion. But I uh, there was a great movie. It's called The Endless Summer, and the surfers yes. went all around the world all the time yes. to try to keep you know to try to keep it simple so they could surf. And I thought, well, that was a pretty good motto. And then uh, later on, I always, I, uh, the older I got and lived in Arizona, I lived in Connecticut here, the storms in like 2013, 14, and 15 were just terrible in the wintertime. And so that's time to, time to think about spending more time out in, in Arizona, my own uh, old hangout. So yeah, yeah. Got a place there for the winter and that's where we go for the, uh, first part of the year, and uh, usually it's great. A little colder than what well, you guys experience too. A little colder than normal in Texas there too. Yeah, it's been. It's yeah, been, there's been last, the past couple of winters have been quite strange. Yeah, yeah we yeah, haven't seen certainly. anything like that in 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 my lifetime. I don't think. I mean, we've had some crazy cold weather in Texas, and uh, you know, then this time of year rolls around, and we're in for a heat wave that'll last about eight months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we try not to complain too much. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. I hear 150 you. days of 100 degrees. <laughs> yeah, that's that even sounds worse than Phoenix, but Phoenix is pretty bad, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's a cliche around here, and it might be in Phoenix as well, but it's the humidity that kills you in Texas. The, the, the heat in Phoenix, I think, is drier, but you step outside in Texas, and it can be. 92 95 degrees but it feels like you just walked into a, a a furnace well it's the same thing in connecticut here by the time it you know gets into the 90s i always say i can i can play golf in the 90s and the hundreds in arizona but once it hits 90 degrees in connecticut there's no way i can play 18 holes of golf wow <laughs> speaking of golf who's the better golfer you or alice uh, Alice is pretty damn good. I, I, uh, I've had my moments. I've had two hole in ones, uh, since he got me hooked on the game in the early, uh, early nineties. I was a late bloomer. He started pretty early, you know, back in the seventies, yeah. but I, I started, um, I started late, but, uh, he gave me my first set of clubs and I still have them. And, uh, uh so, you know, that, that's one reason, I mean, here in Connecticut, I live on a golf course and, uh, when we go to Arizona, they're like, yeah, I've, I, the closest one is like five minutes from, uh, from my house there. And, but they're all over the place out there. So, so he's, he's pretty good. We get a chance to play once in a while, but, uh, I'll never forgive him for getting me into golf because it's, uh, <laughs> 
it's it's an addiction of its own, but I but I love it. It's a great way to get a little bit of exercise. I have a golf cart. I mean, I you know I drive around a golf cart, so I don't get much exercise. If you're out there for four hours, you're swinging the club, getting some fresh air, and you know yeah. getting out your uh, your inhibitions. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 uh, expensive, from what I understand. Not that I would know, but uh, yeah, yeah, it, it it can get expensive. You can spend a lot of money on golf. I mean, luckily, uh, you know, Alice gives me a lot of clubs. I have friends that give me clubs, but um, still, I, you know, I have a house all winter long. Basically, it's to play golf and hang out with Mike Bruce and Alice in uh, in Arizona. So. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, it can, it, it can, it can get expensive, but you have to have the time to do it to a lot of people that would love to play. It takes four hours out of the day. For yeah. me, that's, I, I, I'm not, Alice gets up crack of dawn in place. He'll play nine, 18 holes, but I, I've done it with him a couple of times. Not for me. I'm not a morning person yeah. and, uh, never really have been kind of, that was the way it was back in the day with the band. But now I'm, I'm, uh, you know, 1130 is a good time to tee off and then you have the rest of the day, you know, have a, have a couple of beers and have dinner. So that's, that's a good day. That, that sounds, sounds like a little more day. rock and roll to me than that getting up early. <laughs> Alice, what are you doing to me? How many times have you said that in your lifetime? Alice, what are you doing to me? Yeah. Uh, he's probably said that more about me than I've oh. said about him. So. Oh, shit. <laughs> I was pretty much a big pain in the ass, but. <laughs> well, let me let me get this out of the way. I mean, we're 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 both big fans, and uh, um, big. Your your drumming, your your drumming, kind of, uh, in my opinion, set a bar for a lot of, uh, not just still to this day, but at the time, uh, set the bar pretty high for. Uh, let me move forward. I mean, I yeah. I, lo I love what you what you do. Um, we love what you do. Let me just move out of that fanboy thing for a second and say, do you <laughs> think that early Alice, uh, stuff and, you know, I'm, I'm talking probably even easy action and pretties for you that early, like yeah. your first, like jump, yeah. uh, was maybe considered whether it had to do with maybe Frank Zappo, you know, was, was there with you guys, uh, and the and being an influencer or not, uh, do you feel like it was maybe progressive rock on top of your show? It was very progressive. Nobody was doing what we were doing at the time, and right. and we we were um, we were inspired by uh, electronic music uh, even more than Pink Floyd. Uh, you know, being inspired by them. I mean, we were very aware of them, and we we liked Pink Floyd. But I mean, I, you know, there there was our, our biggest early influences were um, <clears throat> the bands that uh, I mean, Alice. Before I, you know, joined the band, and we changed the name to Alice Cooper, and it was the the uh, Spiders into the Nest. I mean, they're very much into the, the English sound. I mean, that the, yeah. there was uh, not too many people know that, but back in the in the early to mid '60s. Uh, the Phoenix area was a testing ground for a lot of the English music that was coming over. So we were aware of a lot of the bands that never made it, but, but they were great bands, but they just didn't become like the Beatles, the Stones, or the Yardbirds, or the Who. So, you know, we got we got uh, bombarded by all that great music, and some of it was pretty avant-garde. Um, uh, even Jeff Lynn's early band, The Move, with A Night yeah. of Fear. I mean, that was a great song. We were very aware of it, and we've talked about 
about that song and that band, the move other places in the in the country, they have no idea who they are. Yeah. So I mean that's a that's just a prime example of of what I'm talking about. But um, so we we were always on top of that, yeah, the, the theatrics and trying to do something different. But we did the same thing with the music. It, when I met the guys and got to be good friends with them in uh, 66 to 67, uh, we went to Glendale Community College in, in the Phoenix area. Um, we I was in a band called the Holy Grail. We were like the from Tempe, like the, the ASU town, and but we were more like a San Francisco uh, band, and and so we we went to Frisco. We we played, you know, we were playing Paul Butterfield Blues Band. We actually played a couple of Frank Zappa songs too. The Mothers, um, Help I'm a Rock. We we played that song, and uh, so I wasn't a big fan of of Frank's. I mean, I was so into Jimi Hendrix, so into Jeff Beck, so into Pete Townsend. And I, I knew that, 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 uh, uh, Frank Zappa was an amazing guitar player, an amazing arranger, arranger, you know, arranger in this, in his music. So respected that, but we were just, you know, five crazy kids from Phoenix and, uh, you know, drink a little beer, smoke a little pot, and and try to come up with some crazy and glenn was a very innovative guitar player yes i, I mean he was he was he was like myself he you know he started playing at an earlier age and so did i and we're both from akron ohio so we when we started writing the songs and i always say that pretty few and easy accents were really naz songs love okay. it to death finally we we found our own niche we found our own producer and that was really alice cooper but the the early yeah well, i mean to say it's progressive you know, I mean, having songs that are like 30 seconds, you know, a minute and a half, two minutes long, just to make a statement. It was more like an art form. We all went to, yeah. we all majored in art when we were in school. And uh, I think we took that into the music, not only on stage, but also in the arrangements. Just trying to do something completely different that nobody ever heard. We sure. we had a feeling deep inside of us, said, man, when the Beatles hear pretties for you, they're going to get it. They're going to really understand us, and it's going to be a million seller. So, you know, everybody says, well, you know, how did you feel when you finally became stars? We thought we were stars the minute we recorded with Frank. And, and Frank didn't really influence our music too much because we recorded pretty few exactly like we wrote it. There sure. was not one bit of arrangement help. So uh, his Love involvement death, was... Bob Ezrin came in and he helped us. Jack yeah. Richardson came in from Nimbus 9, helped us with arrangements. But um, Frank Frank's... just let it rip. You know, whatever was, you guys are Frank's, doing, man, was, when was they're recording. In, and so... Was Frank's involvement uh, more managerial, like introductions, like, hey, y'all should record these guys, or hey, these guys are my friends, or what was it that Frank introduced? No, he, he was really, I mean, he was the you know, technically the producer of the first album. Okay, right. But, but between him, uh, he he wasn't feeling well. I, I don't know if he had the flu or if he had a cold. Uh, and also, Jefferson Airplane were recording the studio next to us, and they gave us a ceremonial joint that we uh -oh. smoked before we went in the studio with Frank. And Frank, when we came in, he saw us, he was pissed off because he knew we were stoned. Mm -hmm. And he kind of left between not feeling good to begin with and, uh, uh, you know, not happy that we were stoned because um, he was totally straight, no drugs or anything. Yeah. 
So, so he, he left the studio and, um, uh, was it Ian, uh, the, the keyboard player in his band? I think he, I think that's his name, Ian, with the, the mothers. He stayed in the studio and sort of produced it, arranged it for us. And, okay. you know, we did that album basically was, re, you know, recording the songs live in the album. So Frank's, uh, Frank got us in the, uh, our foot in the door. We played some larger venues with him because we were just playing really concerts. We were the house band at the Cheetah. Of course, that was a big club in Santa Monica back in the 60s. So they had, you know, huge audiences. They had the Doors play, Janis Joplin played, Pink Floyd played there. So a lot of big bands played there and they were, you know, but it wasn't, uh, it was, it was like almost San, uh, Santa Monica's version of um, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Bill Graham's theaters in the uh, uh, in, in on the West Coast and on the East Coast, you know, they, they were big theater venues. They weren't concert venues like Madison Square Garden or anything. But when we played uh, the Shrine Auditorium first time with Frank, that was a big venue. And then we went up a West Coast concert all the way into, into Canada. And and those were some uh, like universities. And they had their, you know, their big auditoriums. Yeah. So, and they were packed with, uh, you know, Zappa fans. So that's what he really, he really helped break us where nobody yeah. else would touch us in the whole record. Believe me, everybody in the record industry knew about us and nobody liked us and nobody liked the music. So it was an uphill battle for us all the way. Well, the, 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 the helping hand of Frank Zappa is what is impressive to me that he was kind of dragging you guys around gleefully, happily, uh, and uh, and being a big brother kind of a thing, it's it's impressive to think about, you know, the mid '60s when Beatlemania, which you know, the story you, you just told is incredible, and it's and it's awesome to hear you, your perspective. The um, back to the music and the songwriting and the arranging and stuff. Uh, was was Ezrin involved with the Killer? record he was is that, that yeah right? bob was yeah. yeah bob was involved in all of our records of uh you know the, with warner brothers okay so so halo of flies is like isn't that like an eight minute song yeah it's a, yeah. about a seven eight minute song it was a you know bits and pieces uh, actually you go back to the video of the rock and roll revival in toronto in 69 when michael uh, he's doing a solo we all Everybody sold it in the song and uh, yeah. in, uh, 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 in that particular song. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't Halo of Flies. That was that was a song that we called Animal Pajamas, which was a spinoff of Lay Down and Die Goodbye off the Easy Action album, okay. which was just a that was a big, you know, 10, 11, 12 minute jam freak out on cool. stage. Yeah. And um, Alice actually in that uh, in that video, he played lead lead watermelon with a hammer and uh, <laughs> he takes a watermelon and smashes the hell out of it on stage that's, that's, right along with my drum solo so that's pre, I, I had that's a pre hammer and watermelon accompaniment. that's yeah. pre-gallagher yeah. yeah so yeah awesome. we're, we're kind of jumping all around here and and uh I, I appreciate you indulging us on the alice cooper stuff because i i and i'd love to go back to it uh, but I, I do want to talk a little bit about your Killsmith, uh, Killsmith Goes West album. That's your brand new release. Uh, right. And if I'm not mistaken, it's like the fourth or fifth Killsmith uh, album. It's the fourth. 
Okay. So, so tell us real quick, what is the, what is the character or the theme of Killsmith that continues through the last four, four albums now? Well, well Killsmith was a, uh, when we, uh, when we were um, in Detroit and uh, in Pontiac, and that's when we, we got together with Bob Ezrin in, uh, uh, in 1970. And we did, um, we started recording Love It to Death. That was released in, 71 and uh, uh, later in 71 killer what we just talked about was released but when we were we were literally on the road all of 1969 and uh, half of 1970 before we settled down in in in, in the Detroit area and but heavy metal was not a term that and we used to call and and hard rock the, the music was starting to get even you know definitely harder than hard rock like the stones or Jimi hendrix or the who and we called it kill rock we called it kill rock and then then not only my name being smith but then when i came up with the project because i i wanted a real metal project the first two killsmith albums uh sexual savior and killsmith 2 they're you know probably uh, the most heavy metal sort of music I've ever played. And I played a lot of guitar on that as well and wrote the songs. So I just, you know, fused the two, like the kill rock that we had then with Killsmith being like a person that created that kind of music without saying metal. So that's where the, that's where the, the name originated from. So kill Killsmith is just like, it's, it's like a, a blacksmith that, you know, he makes, things out of iron and a killsmith is somebody that makes, you know, music out of really hard rock. And so that's where the, that's where the term came from. And it, and nobody would understand what I'm talking about, but, but uh, you know, it was a term that we came up, we said, man, that's really, I mean, killer was a big term back then, you know, something was awesome. And in Detroit, it was always killer. And it still is, I think to this day in many, many areas. But um, so I wanted to have a real, the, the one thing that bothered me about, uh, you know, the Alice Cooper image over the years and even with we d- inducted the Hall of Fame, you know, we lost that dangerous edge. Mm-hmm. And I am not comfortable on the other side where it's really, you know, um, safe and the music is really commercial. So mm-hmm. I always have to have that edge no matter what I do. And then the third album was Hillsmith and the Green Fire Empire, which I made into like what I call the last rock opera still really heavy, but it told a story. And Killsmith in that instance was a person. Um, he, he's like a uh, uh, an army veteran, but he was a special, uh, a, you know, specialist, and he was a marksman. And so, you know, and the story is based around that. And, uh, you know, he can be Arnold Schwarzenegger or any of the any of the uh, you know the 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 movie heroes that we that we've seen over the last 20 30 years right and so in this particular one i just had because i really started writing well i mean i've been writing we've been you know even on the alice cooper albums i always had something using my name on the songs as well as michael and dennis's um although michael was our major contributor he was the really the songwriter of the band but uh uh in the 80s, after my, I had a bad divorce, um, I, I wrote a song called Coffee, Beer, and Borrowed Time. And it just, it was about, you know, going through a divorce and 
you know, the things that I, that someone would feel that, you know, maybe we'll get back together, maybe we won't. And then when you finally realize it, you know, what the hell, you know, this is it's a new life and make the, make the most of it. And uh, sort of a celebration of your freedom at that time. And, and uh, it was called around, you know, coffee, beer and bottle time, drinking, you know, too much coffee and too much beer. And so that was the very first one. And I just shelved it. And over time, other songs were put together. That was in the 80s, a couple more. And of course, with our background from Arizona and out West, like uh, I always say, you know, between Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and uh, and California, there were a lot of rowdy people there and rowdy history. Uh, let's let's not kid <laughs> ourselves. And and the, the last of the 48 states was Arizona. So, uh, you know, two big things happened in uh, 1912, uh, Arizona was made a state, the last one of the great 48, and then um, the uh, the Titanic sank. So, uh, there, you know, historically, it was a, a great time. The last wild territory was Arizona, and we, we sort of celebrated that with the Raped and Freezing and the Billion Dollar Baby album, talked about, you know, the area we were from, and, uh, and then also on the Killer album, Desperado. Yeah. So, you know, Really, a salute out to to uh, uh, to the to Arizona, the Phoenix area, the great history, the crazy history, and so I wanted to even you know once I had these songs laying around, I started. Uh, this is before the pandemic. Put, you know, really said, okay, I never know what I'm going to do for the next thing, and when I'm doing the Killsmith projects. but I uh, I put together 12, 13, 14 songs, and then I noticed some of them, they were all heading in a direction uh, it, that I don't, I don't want to do country. And, and I'm a song person. It's not, it's not, I, I'm not a fan of a lot of genres of music, but if a song is a great song, it shines through no matter Definitely. what, you know, it can be a, it can be a theme song from a movie. It can be hip hop. It can be rap. It can be country. It can be Western. It could be, uh, rock. It could be swing. My my mother was a big uh, Glenn Miller fan in the swing era. Played she actually played trombone and in a marching band. So you know, music's always been around me, and I was exposed to a lot of live music when I lived in the Midwest. And uh, so I I'm very aware of it. Uh, I, I got into rock like you know all the a lot of baby boomers did in the in the fifties and sixties, but. I, again, I was a song person, but my these started to gravitate toward that feel because I spent so much time in Arizona. And it's not really out of the realm of possibility to to just kind of you know think about that. Why I went there? I have a song called "Big Wheels Rolling West" about a truck driver. His big dream is is to move out west, to move to Arizona, and his eighteen wheeler is going to one of these days take him there. So, just the, the many different ways you can talk about the West and the influences, whether it's in the 1800s, the 1930s, in the, in the, in the depression. And, uh, cause I, I think of them or fantasize like if Jesus, if Jesus was a gunfighter, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I take, I take situations, take people out, out of history and put them in different times. And, um, I, I'm not being sacrilegious. I'm just being creative. Sure. And, uh, and, and I think that, um, that's kind of fun for me to to do it, and you know, 
you, you see some similarities between the biblical Jesus and the, uh, uh, it's almost like Wyatt Earp. But wider because I love Tombstone. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, and uh, uh, so to take these characters and and to take these stories, I love the great storytellers. Um, you know, Frankie Lane. I mean, Rawhide, uh, the uh, you know, Big Bad John, uh, Jimmy Dean, all the storytelling novelty songs from the fifties and the early sixties, and you know, have those as inspirations when I tell a story. I really want it to be visual. I really visualize songs when I write them. And I and my biggest challenge is, uh, and it's fun for me, to really work hard to to almost have it a visual while you're listening to the song. Yeah. And, um, and, and it really went into that direction. And I just said simply, you know, now, you know, Kill Smith is singing these songs and 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 uh and now it's it's it's, it's all Gillsmith goes west you know keep it simple stupid yeah, and, yeah. and i and i did and and uh uh and the, and i cut some of the songs out and uh it, but it worked fine i mean, i have 10 songs i'm real happy with that fit the album they had great response great uh, great reviews great fans uh, you know some of the fans of course Hmm. Country. I think it's more Western than country, right? Because of because of uh, you know just my approach to it. A couple right. of great, great, uh, great guitar. Arlen Roth, who was a uh, a great country player, was lucky enough to get in on some tunes. The fiddle player Gary, he's amazing, and uh, uh, he he played on um, a coffee beer and borrowed time. The the song I mentioned a few minutes ago. So yeah, uh, it, you know it's sort of. You know, after a while, when you have a vision, the songs sort of write themselves. Your Definitely. your your work is to uh, hone them and have e each one. You know, it's, uh, it's like tattooed cowgirl, mm. which that was a fun one to write. And yeah. another Thelma and Louise kind of character, and you know, yeah. a real rowdy. I mean, uh, she could be right off Yellowstone. She could be right out of. <laughs> the show Dallas in the old days, you know, yeah. and, uh, uh, and and then um, June Box Rose is another one. Uh, you know, she yeah. actually kills a guy in Mexico. So, uh, you know, these these characters come alive for me, and I just try to convey that through the songs. It's interesting that you the the points that you just made because listening to the songs, I get all of that. I get this very cinematic storyteller kind of vibe. I can I can I can visualize the lyrics as as they're as they're coming through the speakers, um, and, and and the going west thing. I, I totally see that too. There's a lot of the sound uh, sonically. The album has a lot of. Uh, there's twang. There's hard boogie. There's western swing. There's some kind of grindy ZZ top sort of stuff a little bit. Uh, very, there's a lot yeah, of kid, they, ZZ top. Kid, they were, we did the last tour in the United States and ZZ top opened for us on the holiday tour, the million dollar baby holiday tour in 73. Wow. And, and I went out and watched them a lot. I love that band. And I always say that if there would have been another style of music that I, I, I would have been happy in a band, it would have been ZZ top. They're, they're a great band. Love them. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. and, and if Jesus was a gunfighter, it's kind of my tribute to Dusty in uh, in that, uh, yeah. Yeah, the song titles are great, too. If Jesus Was a Gunfighter, you mentioned uh, Coffee, Beer, and Borrowed Time. There's another one called Tequila's, Tequila Tamales and a Woman. <laughs> uh, 
uh, uh, what's pull it, pull it out. Smoking is one of the more rocking tunes on the album. Yeah. What, what's tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah. Well, that, that one actually has, has a history and I've been criticized with all the, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the, the gun tragedies, which I think are terrible as everyone does, um, uh, you know, across the country and, and actually in some other countries occasionally too, but, we did have, and this is the, the cutting edge of Alice Cooper back in the day, we actually had a bodyguard on tour with us during the Billion Dollar Babies tour because there had been threats against against the band. There were, there were actually some bomb threats somewhere. There were personal threats against us, and, and we had a bodyguard that, that traveled with us, and he was actually uh, ex-military, and, uh, you know, I would talk to him a lot and hang out with him, and the one, the one phrase that, you know, when you have somebody that's an expert in in in, in weapons and and, ha- and is ex-military and now is a bodyguard, how and when do you know when the time is right to protect the people that you're protecting? Mm-hmm. And he said there's just one rule that he abides by, that if he has to pull it out, pull it out smoking. Mm-hmm. And that wow. that always stuck with me, and that's where, you know, if the threat is real, because if if you pull it out, and anybody that knows firearms, if you pull it out and it's not smoking, somebody's going to pull it out, and it will be. Yeah. So, uh, and that's where it gets really a, a gray area that's not. And I feel terrible. I love law enforcement. I've had I have relatives in law enforcement and in military, and I respect them immensely. They're the, you know, they're the cutting edge of keeping societies, you know, civil, civilized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 you know, a lot of the criticism, unfortunately, puts them in a, in a rough spot. And, uh, but when your life's on the line, there's only one thing to do is pull it out smoking. So, so I uh, I use that phrase. There's also there's a little bit of sexual connotations. In I there was too. wondering. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so I'm just saying the inspiration versus the reality of the uh, uh, the double entendre lyrics. So, yeah. um, but but again, that's that's Killsmith keeping it, you know, kind of on a on the sexual edge, uh, keeping it heavy, and and uh, no, that'll always be no matter what kind of music or what style direction I go in. Uh, they'll always be the really, really heavy metal songs, and 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 that song is um, that's probably the heaviest one on the album. Yeah, uh, Evil Wind is also a, a heavy rocker, but right. but, um, but yeah, Pull It Out Smoking is a great one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The album is called Kill Smith Goes West. It's available at Neil's website. Uh, it's neilsmithrocks.com. Is that correct? There yeah, that's is, it. There's there's it is the right there. It. Yeah, there you can see right it. there. Yeah. So let's go back for a moment because I was, uh, you know, doing my homework knowing that I was going to talk to you today. And I'm a big Alice Cooper fan, but it it dawned on me that I don't know that I realized or I had forgotten that you guys put out a string of five classic albums between 71 and 73. That's like basically two and a half years. You put out five albums that are considered classics. Love it to death, killer, schools out, billion dollar babies, and muscle of love. Who can say that? Now I know uh, that back in those days, bands did. It wasn't unusual for bands that to put out a couple records comment. a year. Yeah, that's kind but, of normal. But I will say, I don't know that anybody, at least in my catalog, of course, I'm a hard rock guy, but yeah. um, you put out five albums, consecutive albums that are considered 
classics. And you can argue that Kiss put out albums at the same pace, Black Sabbath at the same pace, Aerosmith at the same pace. But really, the first, those records didn't really, they weren't successes out of the box. And I think that your five albums, uh, beginning with Love It to Death, are landmark records. And I can't believe that you were able to put them out so quickly while you're touring in between. Tell us about the pace as far as the writing and the touring and how you're cranking these things out. I know you had youth on your side at that time. <laughs> it was a crazy work ethic, too. I That's mean, just I, nuts. I, well, was, well, you, 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 well, first of all, I want to clarify. Yes, classics, but I also like to say platinum as well. But there was bragging if it's true. There was there was a there was that element that inspired us too. But um, no, and and I I love to talk about this. And I mean, there's two things that we don't talk about too much: is Dennis and Mia's rhythm section and the work ethic of the band. And that's what I loved about the band when i when i joined them i knew how hard they worked and they were all writing their songs i said holy grail that i was with went to san francisco we're still doing cover material great songs but cover material but by that time the naz when they left phoenix they were doing all the original all original stuff and so when i ended up living with them after my band broke up and was at santa monica uh and John, their drummer, moved back to Phoenix, and they asked me to join the band. And I, you know, I mean, because Glenn and I were really close friends. I was close with Michael too, but Glenn and I both from Akron, Ohio. But as you said, and I can't stress that enough, the work ethic of the band and and my work ethic just meshed because it's like nothing was going to stop us. Every single day, we were rehearsing, we were traveling. We were playing or we were recording every single day, 24-7. That's why we, when we finally in 1974 decided to take the year off, uh, it, it was it was well worth it to, to do it rest-wise. Unfortunately, the band didn't get back together. But the songs were coming out like crazy. And I also want to point out another cool thing. Somebody had just done a great review about uh, about the Killer album. And and noticing the fact, they called it the music in the band was totally organic, and I thought, man, that is a great way to put it because no corporate entity ever told the band Alice Cooper what to do. Bob came in and he helped mold our songs, and uh, added some wonderful arrangements, sweetening like with "I Love the Dead" with the orchestration and and the other songs too, but. Michael, uh, all the songwriting changed because you know he said, "Well, between Easy Action and Pretty's for You, uh, Easy Action and Love to Death, what happened?" It's a natural evolution. I mean, look at all the Beatles albums; how they changed over time from one album to another. As a songwriter, you know, we were just you know we were just start, you know once we had the freedom to do it, don't even think about it. The songs were just flowing, and luckily we had management that that would keep up with us and, you know, keep the gigs coming. We're writing songs on the road. Under I'm my wheels on Killer. When, was it Shep Gordon that came in at a certain time that sort of like... Yeah, Shep came, he, Shep came in right uh, in 60, uh, 68. Perfect when timing. When Zappa wanted to, uh, wanted to, well, it's an accident, but it's not an accident. Oh. Zappa wanted to sign us, but we didn't want Zapp, we didn't want Herbie Koa and Frank to manage the band. 
Herbie Cohen's Frank's manager. We knew that the one thing that in all the very successful bands coming out of England, every band, the Beatles had their manager, the Stones had their manager, Bob Dylan had their man. All, all the big bands had their own manager that they were number one with, and that's what we wanted. In the meantime, Cindy, my sister, who was Dennis Dunaway's uh, wife, yeah, she worked at a uh, at a boutique in Hollywood, and these guys from New York, these hip looking guys, came in a couple times. Cindy finally introduces herself, talks to them, and asks them, "We know what they did for a living." And they said, "We're." We're from New York, and we're we're uh, we're here to find a band to manage. She goes, well, my brother Neil's in a band called Alice Cooper, and Frank Zappa wants to record them, and that's how it started. Wow. It was my sister the man. It wasn't Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. Those are stories that I think that the truth is always weirder than anything else. And the fact that they came into that store where Cindy worked. She lived in Dallas at the time. Uh, she and my mom moved from Phoenix to Dallas. And Cindy wanted to be, we were very, always very close. There's only about 18 months between us. So she moved to to uh, to L.A. so we could be close. We lived in Topanga Canyon. And that's what happened. Frank, uh, Shep had a partner, Joe Greenberg. So Shep Gordon and Joe Greenberg came to see us. And boom, that was that was the next step. We had the, man, we had the record company. Now we needed managers, our own managers, to manage Alice Cooper. And and then the next step after Easy Action, after the first two albums, was to finally get our own producer, and that was Bob Ezrin. So all of that, along with the work ethic, we, we were really a machine by that time. Oh, yeah. And and when we made up, when we you know came up with the name Alice Cooper, which did come up from a Ouija board, uh, I was there that night, and um, it did. The, uh, didn't. No, it did. Did no, okay. I, That's what I thought. I was yeah. there because that same story happened to me as well as to Vince. But it didn't say Alice for me. It was another name. But it's, that's another story. But uh, so once we were rolling, it was a machine. I mean, you know, Michael was writing songs. And Michael and I would go down in the barn in Pontiac. And uh, that's where we worked out Love Us to Death and Killer. And he come up with these songs. And I'm just like, you know, because first of all, he, you know, he's, he's got him. He's got the melody. And, and he'll sit down. And, he's play, and he starts playing Caught in a Dream. I go, holy shit. The songs just got better and better, you know, and drive me nervous. I go, this is great for flams. And, and I mean, the, you know, they just wrote themselves. It was all just happening. And, and uh, you know, Bob and Jack Richardson came in and, and they just, you know, tweaked everything a little bit. And, and, and then wow. before, before long, we were back over the studio and recording the killer album. Wow, so, uh, and, and then by then we, you know, we were, doing well enough that we wanted to be close to to Shep and Joe, our managers in New York, and we wanted to move to New York, to Westchester, but they said, no, no, Connecticut has no income tax. You guys are moving to Greenwich, Connecticut. So that's when we got the man that we got it there. It was all for business, not because we wanted to come to Connecticut. But of course, now they have an income tax, naturally. Wow. But at that time, they did not. That's why we ended up in Greenwich. Yeah, and there's a killer. That's Kachina. That's my this snake. This is your snake on the cover of the killer yeah. record, correct? Kachina. Yeah. Kachina. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me, did you introduce, bring, I mean, Alice is known for bringing the snake on stage. Uh, so was, did you introduce the whole concept of, of the snake being part of the stage act? It certainly made well, the album cover. <laughs> yeah, well, she, well, she was, um, when we did one of the early shows, I think in 1971, down at Pirate's World in um, Florida, I think it's, uh, you know, if it's Palm Beach or, or uh, 
Uh, I'm not quite sure Miami where where that club was. It was an outdoor venue, and we we always had great shows there, huge audiences. And we we played um, uh, one time. I think you know we would play with bands like the MC5, who we're very familiar with in in the Detroit area. And but somebody uh, threw a snake on stage, and me being, I, I mean, I always tried to. I, I had everything from uh, all kinds of pets my whole life, everything from lizards and turtles and alligators and, and uh, snakes. And uh, so somebody threw it on stage and, I, I, you know, I didn't want to. I said, yeah, this is a great pet for, for touring. So I got a, I, you know, I had a I had a, a big makeup case that I put it put her in. And uh, she traveled with us, and, and like everybody else, my sister was the dancing tooth. Eventually, everybody that toured with us had to have a job. So uh, you know, isn't my body, which was kind of a stripper song. Uh, I mean, it was just a you know, nobody said who came up there. You know, she was just part of the, she was part of the the, the crew, you know. Yeah, and yeah. she traveled with me, and I took her on the road, and then we started using her, you know, early on in love it to death, um, probably almost. <laughs> Almost simultaneously with uh, you know the release of the album on "Is It My Body," and of course that added another theatrical element because you know, there were many times over through history and whether it's the late 1800s or the 1900s when strippers would have snakes uh, as part of their act. So yeah. you know, Kachina, we had her, and I don't even know how uh, we we you know she ended up on the on the cover. I think we just thought it would be cool to to uh, you know have a snake on the cover, yeah. um, and really, literally, hundreds of pictures. And the photographer that took the picture, there was one, one single picture with guess what? Her tongue sticking out that he got. And I mean, all the rest of them, they're like going back. But that was the perfect one picture. So we said, I mean, this is this this is killer, and uh, and we'll uh, you know put it put it on there. And then I was of course. The picture on the back cover, I'm holding uh, holding my pet snake. So yeah, right. I like uh, I like the double entendre. I like the because it's sexual and snakes are sexual. Why is that? I like the I like the fact that a lot of stage, you know, theatrical rock bands they'll wear a feather boa, right? Well, yeah. Alice yeah. is wearing a boa. Boa. <laughs> It's a boa boa. It's not a feather boa. It's a real boa, you know. Right. And I, uh, and I, was, and I was the one that uh, used to hunt the birds in the barn in Pontiac so she could eat. Oh, wow. <laughs> so wow. did you ever – I, I, I always ask – I always ask bands that put on a theatrical show and have big production, and there there is no greater theatrical band than the early Alice Cooper band. So we're talking about the Snake, which was part of the stage show, and of course the rest of the stage show is legendary with the guillotine and and that sort of thing. Was there ever, what was the biggest mishap on stage that that you remember? We call we call that a spinal tap moment. Yes. Tell us <laughs> <laughs> where they had the uh, Stonehenge come down. It was this big, right? But, um, and it's supposed to be twelve feet tall, not twelve inches. But um, we we had a uh, there. There's probably several. I don't know how much time we have, but uh, one of the, you allow <laughs> one of the one of the uh, one of the big ones was um, we had played uh, because in our in our travels, especially in Canada. And, they were, you know, being art majors as we were, 
we would run across a lot of very artistic, uh, you know, people and fans. And a lot of them would come up with ideas. Well, we had this one uh, artist from, uh, from uh, Toronto, and he had the idea of, if we played outside, to have this really gigantic pterodactyl right behind me on the drums. And we played, I think it was at um, Wrigley Field out on the, in the baseball field. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, what, basically what it was was like a giant hang glider that looked like a pterodactyl. I mean, it looked like something out of one of the Jurassic Park movies, exactly what it looked like. Um, but we kind of forgot one element, as that Chicago, what's their nickname? The Windy, the Windy City. City. Windy City. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, this thing started moving and quivering, and it fell down on top of me. Oh. So that that was that was a really really bad. Nobody got hurt, but it was just incredibly embarrassing. the The other one was probably the biggest one that was uh, in front of an audience. Um, before we decided to go with the uh, the guillotine, if I'm not mistaken, it was on the uh, uh, the early. It was either the Billion Dollar Baby Tour or the Schools Out Tour, but I think it was Billion Dollar Babies. But we um, <clears throat> we had the idea of a cannon and, a sh you know, taking the idea from a circus, shooting right. Alice out of a cannon. And I got to tell you, I mean, I, I Alice is very, very, very sane. I mean, yeah, he seems crazy on the stage, but he's very down to earth, very sane. The fact that he would get in this thing uh, was amazing. So Warner Brothers Pops Department made it. It was a bigger than life size cannon where Alice could actually get in the barrel and climb down. Meanwhile, this thing is cocked with this giant spring in there. And there, there was this, an escape hatch down there where Alice would go down there. And But still, this thing is cocked. He would go down there, he would, get, he would escape, they'd close it back up and put a dummy of Alice in there, just exactly the way he's dressed and everything. And, and uh, we did this at a test show outside of uh, outside of Detroit. But we would do occasionally before we would actually take a big show on the on the road, and <clears throat> this could have been before the before the the killer show. I'm not, but it was one of the shows we tested it out. And uh, when the the part of the show that at the end the finale when Alice would come flying out of there and go across the stage. Well, if you ever took like a rag doll and you kind of threw, they don't really throw like a paper plane or something go straight. It kind of came out and just kind of like, <laughs> it looked terrible. It was the stupidest thing we ever did. Like a and rag so, doll. Yeah, it looked like a rag doll, but a really, really big one. <laughs> and it was just, it wasn't cool. You know, if it would have been like Spinal Tap cool, you know, that's one thing, but this was just not cool. Didn't so have now, bones in it. So, no, 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 it was a boneless, it was a boneless person. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a boneless chicken, a boneless person. But uh, so the next thing, the next idea, the next, because we had two nights to work on this. So uh, now, okay, you've got a big cannon. Looks like a giant penis. What do you do? You take soap suds and you fill it up. And Alice goes up and he starts jerking off this giant cat, a giant cannon sitting on it. And the soap suds come out of the and because we've used bubbles like Lawrence Welk bu bubble machine so many times in our uh, in our shows, it just kind of kind of made sense. Um, two kind of bad things with that when all of this soap is coming out, it's going on the stage. Oh, no. And all of a sudden, 
the stage becomes as slippery as ice. Yeah. So between that and it just, again, it really, there was no way to really make it work with the song, whatever we were doing. And uh, it, there's a few others, like when the trap door didn't open when Alice was being hung. Yeah. And uh, that, that was a, he tries to jump up and down on it to break it. And I'm going, uh, Alice, if you can't break it, it's a ghost. So I don't even, I think it was just a premature. And then the lightning and the smoke all kind of, you know, and then the skeleton was there hanging. Somewhere yeah. that, but that was a pretty bad moment too. But the one with the, the soaps has just really, you know, that cannon just lived in our house in Greenwich for a long time. And, um, I eventually ended up in a junkyard, but uh, <laughs> but, but those those were some of the some of the ideas that we had that just in, you know they were there were more, but we we actually had more that worked than that didn't. But it's like anything else, trial and error. And error. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You um, mentioned earlier some of your uh, influences on the early stages of the band, and and when I listen to your playing. Um, it's it's interesting to me. It reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite drummers, Bill Ward from Black Sabbath, because he's very jazzy in his approach. He plays in a hard rock, uh, heavy metal band, and yeah. you play in a in a basically a hard rock band that has other uh, nuances to the music. But to me, your playing style is very uh, is jazzy, avant garde, intricate. Um, your yeah, your most Neil iconic. Swing. Neil can yeah, swing there's like there's Bill. there's swing yeah. in there. Yeah. yeah. So your maybe your signature drum part is the intro to Billion Dollar Babies. What do you remember about coming up with that piece? Good question. I was going to want to talk about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bob wanted me to uh, rock and Reggie, a friend of ours, friend of Glenn's that lived with us at the stayed with us in uh, the Galicia State many times. He was also a singer songwriter, still a friend of ours to this day. And uh, he had a he had a song that he came up with. We were putting songs together for the Billion Dollar Baby album, and. Uh, we we kind of fooled around with it. We normally wouldn't go outside of our writing sphere of influence, but um, <clears throat> he was a close friend. It was it was cool, but it had changed so much that it really wasn't anything like he started. But if you look on the the credits on the the song, Reggie Vincent's name is on there. Rockin's name is on there. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had worked out an arrangement, and I was playing it pretty straight like I normally would. But, you know, you mentioned my, my influences. I took two years of snare drum, learned all the rudiments, you know, mastered those before I ever even got a, a set of drums. So I like to call myself a rudimentary, you know, a rudiment drummer. And, and, and again, flams, I love flams and drive me nervous. You know, that's when I played it, you know, between hi-hat and snare drum through almost the whole song. And I always loved Get Off My Cloud. It was a great song by the Stones and Charlie Watts just played a real simple you know, anybody knows the song, knows how it goes on the intro of the song. But, and I wanted to do something. And, and we hadn't really done, I mean, Black Juju, of course, that's a whole theatrical piece itself, starting off with lots of tom-toms. That's a different, you know, that that's a that's taking you on a little bit of a musical journey. But this was just going to be a flashy intro and bang into the song. And so I came up with the intro to, uh, uh, to the song. Uh, Bob was not... I mean, he was, you know, he liked it, he thought it was cool, but he said, if, you, if you're going to do it, and then what I did to the choruses with that sort of a, more of a tango, tango kind yes. of a feeling dun, 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 yes. dun, dun, yeah. in there, it, it all worked together really well. And yeah. um, so I, instead of playing it straight all the way through, I had these little, you know, 
tempo nuances, feeling nuances. It changed all the way from the intro. And again, all flams on the beginning, you know, with the with that intro. And, you know, uh, story cut short, I played it perfectly through and the rest was history. And, Let me and, and still to this day, nobody can get the feel of it like uh, when Dennis and I play that song. Right, yeah, right. Let me, let me jump in and 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 ask like a, well, it's not a technical question. It it has to do with uh, I don't want to say credits, but which came first? Was it the 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 lyric, the the guitar riff, or was it that drum part, that intro part? Was that because it kind of sets a, you know, because you think about it for a second, and this is up for argument, uh, friendly argument at that uh, that. You know, you can or you cannot write a song on a drum kit because it's not really you're not playing a scale or a melody. I mean, unless it's an electronic kit, you you know what I'm saying. So, yeah, yeah. But, but that but that is almost like a riff, like it's almost like a guitar riff. You know that. Well, it, that, that, that yeah. That's almost like yeah. inf can influence your band, your bassist, your guitar, your your piano. But that's. But this is the total opposite on this song. We had. The song "Generation Landslide" on the Ooh, yeah. uh, on the Billion Dollar Baby album. Yep. That song was written from what I played on the intro to that song. Mm. Unlike Billion Dollar Babies, Billion Dollar Babies, the song was written, and then I put, you know, I I did my flash to it. I put my I put my parts in it. So oh, the song was written before the intro was there. Okay. Alice sometimes says that the intro, he, he, I think he's thinking about Generation Landslide because we were having, we were having, uh, we were recording, the, we were writing the last song for the Billion Dollar Baby album, um, and which is the same album. So we were, we went from, this is the end of the Schools Out tour in the UK and in Europe. We were staying at the Blake's Hotel in, in, uh, uh, in London. And we wanted to get get away after the after the tour to write this last song. We we're recording at um, Morgan Studios in London, and we went down to the Canary Islands. And there was a new hotel that was being built. They hadn't quite finished the top floor, but there were there were rooms up there. So we went up on the top floor, and that's where we wrote the song. And wow. kind of like the, all five of us were up there, like one guitar, you know, simple set of drum. I mean, my, well, my drum set wasn't simple, but enough that. You know, I could play my normal feels and four times across the top. And we were having writer's cramp as a band to write this last song. And as sometimes happened, you know, you know, you know, Michael would go, you know, give me a, you know, give me a, give me a beat, give me a feel. And, and swing is a big deal for me too. Um, and Ginger Baker, man, he said it best, and I really got it when he said it. And I think that's what people miss with Halo of Flies. But, you know, there's no swing in those songs when other drummers play them. If you play that straight, you know, two, four all the way through, you're right on the beat. You've screwed up the whole feel of the song. Right. And, you know, again, going back to the classics with Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich, they all had the swing. Yes. That's why that's the swing sound. Yeah. But. Uh, but I started playing the intro, you know, boom, dam, boom, 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 to uh, to Generation Landslide, and Michael starts strumming the chords. The song was written like in in a half an hour, and then we did like a Yardbirds break, you know, the bam, bam, boom, 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 boom. Now Alice playing them up. Always try yeah. to get Alice play harp. He's a great harmonica player, wow, and yeah. uh, so that song was written from. The standpoint of the, the drum laying down the feel of it. Billion Dollar Babies, it was it was an afterthought after the song was written. Wow. So okay. I mean, 
yeah, it, and there's no way in the world. I mean, I, I, I love the song, and I wanted to try to do something, like I said, flashy, like Charlie Watts had a little signature on the end of it. Yeah. But since then, it's become like my signature song, the signature song off the album, our only number one album in the, you know, in the in the charts in the, in well, 1973, the only number one album we ever had. Well, so I'm really, kind of happy about that. It's it's really it's, yeah. It's really great to hear hear these stories about. A, you're telling stories about where you guys were when you were kind of like having this intellectual property form. Uh, I love that. Um, Intellect isn't a use its word, uh, a word that's used a lot around us, but I appreciate it when it, when it is. <laughs> well, see, at least you're, you're able a lot to of make, things, but that's not usually one of them. Able, able to able to have fun with what little. Let's see, you intellectual ass. You. As, no, that doesn't work as well. No, I can see. That. As much as you have or have not, uh, respectfully, yeah. can laugh at yourself as well as others. Um, this is where I want to sort of toot some horns here. I, I've been teaching for uh, a corporate school called School of Rock for 18 years now. Oh, yeah. I've heard uh, I, direct, I direct shows there. We just did an Alice show. We did Babies. We did Landslide. We did uh, Long Way to Go. We did Condor yeah. Dream. Of course, we did 18. And, you know, we did a bunch of the what I just call newer Alice stuff as well. But yeah. I'm telling you, these kids really, I mean, they like, they like, you know, Poison and they like, you know, the, the other, the late eighties, Alice, they like those songs, but. Well, nobody's perfect. The, what, what are you going to do, right? <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> but the, but these kids, and we're talking about anywhere from, you know, 11 years old to 16 years old, they lit up when I showed them you know, that 70s stuff, they really yeah. lit up. They're like, whoa, and they could not wait to learn how to basically the magic of those songs, how yeah, to swing those great. parts, how to play those drum parts, how to play the bass line. The, I mean, Dunaway is like playing bass solos. He's playing bass oh, solos yeah. in Schools Out. He's playing bass solo. That intro for Landslide is one of it's fucking amazing over just the the sticks on the rim yep. was that a rim yep. shot you were doing just on the rims of a yeah, probably just playing the rims yeah yeah yep. yeah they love that kind of shit and how that all builds up and they love that harmonica you know bum 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 a john yep. john a john john it's an old on that they yeah. were they were loving that little math problem so these yeah. little things are help are influencing these literal kids that are don't even have a favorite band because the you know the digital age has fucked that all up they don't have a favorite yeah, record a favorite they can't name a band they oh yeah. i like this one song who does it they, they don't know the name of the art it's terrible yeah. but anyway uh it was such a blast some of the kids wore the makeup and stuff and they dressed <laughs> up and so fun so fun so fun but yeah. it also it also is is dangerous like like on uh, on babies on billion dollar babies, the drummer bless his heart, it gave he was so happy that he got to sign that song because he got to overplay. Yeah, because he's he's ad libbing on your 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 skeleton. Yeah, well, I, so, I I always say that I've tried to do two things in my career as a drummer. 
the first one, I'm happy when any when anybody gets what we do. But my biggest compliment, my biggest connection is if a drummer gives me a compliment. That's my number one biggest compliment. Yeah. And then, then, then the second one is it, like you're saying, it's not even somebody get, but now it's across decades, you know, with the internet, yeah. which I hate the internet, but I love the fact of what it's done for music and that exposes people to so many kinds of music. And, and the other thing is I don't, I've never wanted to look at myself or have somebody, I don't want to be a glorified metronome. Yeah. I want to actually play the drums. I'm a rudimentary drummer. I want to use my rudiments. And, uh, um, you know, there's, there's a something that I played on. I think it was um, the ballad of Dwight Dwight Fry when the it breaks down and and you just hear that stick just fall on the snare drum. Just a, nobody's ever done that ever. I call it a I call it a, a, a drop stick and it's a rudiment that doesn't exist. Wow. But I made it up for that song and it just and I even when I, I listened to it recently and I'm going man. It just works amazingly well in that. But, you know, you do enough drugs or beer. No, I'm only kidding. Boys and girls, I'm only kidding. Only kidding. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, you just have to think out of the box a lot. And 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 uh, I really didn't want to be, I mean, I, I learned enough about music that I just didn't want to, and nothing, I mean, Ringo, what Ringo does and what Charlie Watts does is great. And I think they're phenomenal drummers because yeah. sometimes it's what you don't play versus what you do play yeah. and 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 there's times when i have to you know i have to pull back just to let the groove of the song i i still like to think of myself as a groove player you know when when that that locked and michael when michael and dennis and i play there's still no three-piece rhythm section that locks like we do and we've we've done it enough even in recent years that it just it, it still gives me a, a thrill and it's one of my biggest blessings in music that i've had the chance to play with these guys yeah well, Alice was very, very lucky to have you guys. Oh, what, what a band. That. What a band. So, you guys are yeah. a sick-ass band. And, and you know, and, untouchable. It's, there's no doubt in my mind that when you guys went on stage, people walk, musicians in the crowd were probably going, what did I just see? Yeah. And, pound so. for pound, man for man, that was an unbeatable band. And I'll say also, Amen. besides the music, the look, I mean, this, look at the hair on the back of this. No, that's the best. That's one of the best pictures of Ben ever. And it this was is, the photographer that set that up. That's you know, not only one of the, 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 I remember getting this album, of course, you know, uh, and I'm thinking, you know who the coolest looking guy on this picture is? Yeah, me. You. This guy right here. And today I, I, I'm and, talking and, to him. Look at and that. that was, but that, but that was just. That was the coolest hairband ever. We were a hairband before they existed. And right. also, I want to point out in that in that album cover, I am the one. Who, not only was Kachina my snake on the killer album, but the cane is my cane. And if you see it on the front cover too, and why do I have it? You everybody by now has heard about the hunting accident where Alice accidentally shot me. No, I don't know this. No, <laughs> you don't know no. this. Shoot yourself in the foot. So this this no, isn't this, no, this isn't just right. a this oh, isn't shit. just a prop. This isn't no, this a prop. Was, there, there was a time. There was a time when we lived the before we right before we changed the name to Alice Cooper. We were in the Arizona in early 1968, and Alice and Mike Allen, Mike Mike Ant Boy Allen, 
he, uh, uh, the three of us went jackrabbit hunting out in the desert, sat on our friend's car, drive through the desert like at two miles an hour at night with the, with the lights on, and the jackrabbits, you know, jump up, and you can see their eyes glare, and then you shoot at them, and you think you hit them, and you don't because we're too drunk. And that's some, that's so some I, redneck I, shit. I, ran, I thought I hit one, I ran out, and then boom, all of a sudden, Alice accidentally squeezed the trigger off. We're all sitting on the hood of the car. Oh, and That's the short story. It went in my ankle bone. It's still there to this day. And when I had the cast on, I wore a cane forever. I still have that cane here at home, too. Wow. But, um, but, uh, but that, was when I, that was when I started. I mean, you know, even when I had the cast off until it was a hunt. My, I mean, it's never bothered me. Well, I can tell you when it's going to rain. That's about the only thing. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I'm a good weatherman. But, uh, <laughs> but that's where the cane came from. Then, of course... You know, and it's great. I mean, Alice, you know, uses it on stage and, and we use it uh, with the, the love it to death. But um, on and then even some of the pictures that he took love it to death, he he had the, the straight more like the, uh, the cane that was in the old, you know, the dancers used back in the 30s movies and everything. So but but that that first one on the love it to death album, that was mine. And that and the reason I still wore it and used it because it was kind of a, a habit with, uh, you know, when I needed it, when I had the cast on. Wow. Yeah. I had no uh, idea. I just thought that photo, you know, every photo of, of the band from that, from that era, you just look like the scariest, most dangerous, most rocking band ever. And it's almost like if your hair wasn't down to your waist, you weren't allowed to be in the band. <laughs> <laughs> so is it true that uh, Glenn Buxton used to carry a switchblade in his boot? Uh, after schools that we all had switchblades. I care. I mean, there was one, there was one time. Yes. So Glenn carried a switchblade um, that he almost stabbed Michael with one time. That's another story. But, uh, but, uh, and that's a story that Michael told me, but um, I mean, you know, basically 99% of the time we had a black, I call it the party that, that never ended. But uh, there was, there was a time when we're, I was talking about the bodyguard that when we played the Hollywood bowl, when I, uh, and I had Kachina. Um, we were just went, went, we were in Phoenix, and I, we still had our driver's license. So I uh, I bought a uh, an antique nine millimeter German Luger. It was beautiful, wooden handled with a diamond uh, grip on it, and uh, a twenty two Magnum uh, Derringer and a three fifty seven Magnum uh, pistol, and that was that was brand new. The, the Magnum, uh, the Derringer, and the Luger were old, and I kept them in the carpet bag that I kept Kachina in. I put I put a couple blankets over it, and she was in that. I walked right on the airplane with three pistols and a snake, and nobody ever looked her, you know. And there was one picture that I saw one time. There's this lady, she's like 95 years old, sitting there right next to my carpet bag. If she ever knew what was in there, first of all, the snake, she would have had a heart attack. But, it, but anyway, so I wouldn't worry about Glenn as much as me in those days. Cause I, I mean, I knew the threats that were coming in and again, you know, eventually we had our, our bodyguard, but, but I, uh, but I had the opportunity to buy those. And then I took them back to, to Connecticut. And um, unfortunately I, I lost those, those guns over time, but, uh, but I, I was really into target practice, even though, I was accidentally shot one time by my lead singer, but that's a, a we just talked about. <laughs> well, wow. and that would have been in when was the the photo taken in '69 or '70? Which one? The love it to, the, death. The love it to death when he love used it to death. the cane. That was probably that was probably uh, early '71. Oh, '71. Okay, right. So I was with the cat. 
the cast was well off by then because that was when we still lived in Topanga Canyon. Okay. We couldn't even afford, I couldn't even afford to go to a doctor, so I had this big Bowie knife and a hammer, and that's how I cut the cast off of my leg. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Crazy. Well, so I don't even know why you guys needed a bodyguard. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like you're well, off to the teeth and ready to fight, man. I mean, geez. Uh, well, Glenn and I did get in a few fights one time, and believe me, we weren't the ones that lost. But, but it wasn't because of the weapons that we had. It was, you know, just two guys from Akron. We weren't exactly hippies, let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, I always thought the photo on the back cover of Love It to Death was the coolest photo of a rock and roll band ever. Yeah. And you're the yeah, coolest and you're the coolest looking guy in that photo. Everyone <laughs> for a second there, when you look at that photo, you think that Neil is the singer. You know, I know because he's front and center. If you forget, well, it's because his foot got shot who, by Alice. Yeah, if you forget, <laughs> you know who Alice is when you're looking at the photo. You would go, "Oh, that must be the singer." Wait, that's Neil. Never mind. Yeah. But, I tell, but I tell you, don't say but. But but <laughs> but when we would when we would go to the air, I would usually be, you know, when we came through the airports as an entourage. This is before we had limos waiting beside our private planes. But when we used to fly into the airports. I was usually the head of the entourage because once the Hare Krishna people were there, I yelled, "Get the fuck out of my way!" To them, and at the top of my voice, it would echo through the airport. I would be in the front, and a lot of people would think that I was the singer of the band, mm-hmm. that I was Alice. Yeah. And if people come up with album covers for me to sign them, I said, no, that's that's in over there. Yeah. And uh, so it, that mistake, we you know, until the band was really, really well known. And then nobody, you know, then nobody got confused who Alice was. So right. Um, right. It, it wasn't it wasn't that unusual. And but we, you know, we didn't I mean, we were all best friends. You know, it it, it didn't matter. And and we all loved what we were doing. And that's why, you know, when we decided to call one of it. We could have decided to call Glenn Alice. You know, then anybody could have been sure. Alice in the band. Right, right. But, you know, it just made more sense. The lead singer was was Alice, but but anyway, uh, any not, other questions, guys? Yeah, one one yeah. one last quick one, I've if I may. T- I've got a couple little things. Too. Okay, I just oh, wanted ahead. to know after that run of classic albums, why did the band stop? Uh, Alice obviously went on with a with a solo career in a different band and whatnot, and I think the intention was for you guys to just take a break and come back. But what what led to the you know the falling out and you guys never sort of? Well, I'm not I'm not, I'm not going to get into that too much. But we took the year off, and uh, everybody agreed to get back together to to, to do the next studio album uh, after uh, Muscle of uh, after Muscle of Love and. Michael and Dennis and I had already gotten together uh, to do that. Glenn was a little bit incapacitated because he didn't play anything on the Muscle of Love album. And he was, uh, even though School's Out was his album 100%, by Million Dollar Babies, the only thing he did was, you know, smash a guitar on on Sick Things. So, you know, he was suffering his own problems uh, with the demons of rock and roll. Unfortunately, man, I love him. He's like my brother. I still miss him to this day and always will. But... Um, we were supposed to get together to do the next album. That's where the, the Billion Dollar Baby Band Battle Axe album came from. That was the roots of the song that we were going we were putting together. And then Alice found success with Nightmare and, you know, yeah. didn't want to, you know, kind of reneged on our, our on our deal. Ah. But <clears throat> at that point, um, the top of our career, uh, <clears throat> I was not going to get in a lawsuit, even though it was talked about, because we all own the name. We all own the name Alice Cooper and the corporation. So, uh, you know, it, it, it worked out. And that's why, you know, when we got inducted to the Hall of Fame, we all, 
you know, we had been playing together. I think our first show we did uh, was at Alice Cooperstown in Phoenix in, in uh, the late 90s when he opened his club there. And then Glenn passed away and we had a Glenn Bucks Memorial Weekend that we did there too at Cooperstown. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we were together, we were playing, and then uh, 2000, uh, 2010, Alice wanted to write some songs for the uh, Welcome to My Nightmare album, yeah. the, the sequel. And uh, we wrote three songs uh, with the you know with the original band for that album, yeah. and then right after that we were nominated for the Hall of Fame, and unbelievably we made it on the first ballot, and <clears throat> so uh, that's why we were always together. And, and Alice puts it perfectly. He said, "In in in a marriage, there can be a really nasty divorce, or there can be an amicable separation." Mm-hmm. And he said, "We never." got a divorce. We were always friends forever. And we were just, I mean, we were too close. We went through too much. Motherfucker shot me. I'm not, you know, you can't get, you can't get much more of a blood brother than that. So, uh, so he, so he's like, you know, really, really my, uh, uh, you know, I mean, he, he and Glenn and I were probably eventually close as we shared rooms together, destroyed many uh, hotels and uh, people's lives and dreams, but um, <laughs> we uh, we had, had a great time. So hopefully that in there somewhere that answered the question, and that's why you know we've 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 had songs on the last three Alice albums, the solo albums, and who knows maybe someday we'll do an album completely on our own, the original band. Happy to hear. I, I would love that. I just wanted to, and maybe we can end with this, um, and and then Dave will take us out. Um, Touching back to something that Dave did say, it was a very short time when you think about the the Zappa days and and the you know pre Shep kind of a thing, um, and you have those two records, and then you go all the way through Muscle of Love with that you know that was a very short 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 blast of time like a flash, where this band of crazies who were Amazing. To me, that's a compliment. <laughs> yes. It was intended were, as one. I wasn't even done yet, and I'm complimenting you. Uh, amazing musicians in their own right and, and can play any style and it's it, who mesh together. And as you put, were best friends and blood brothers and did everything together and destroyed and created all in one <laughs> uh, dream uh, come true uh, and seemingly would go to together everywhere the canary islands and detroit and uh, you know topanga and the the bay area and phoenix again and everywhere uh, all yeah. together as a as a group and create this uh flash in time that i i own it all it's in my record collection it's yeah. part of my yeah. dna uh the first ballot, it, more deserving than just a Hall of Fame. I mean, it's a beautiful thing that that's amazing that you guys are in there. But I say, fuck a Hall of Fame. I got my own Hall of Fame, and you guys were in it the whole fucking time. Is the point <laughs> that I'm making? Rock yeah. fans know it's not like a board of directors where they are all looking at spreadsheets and go, "Well, these guys did this, and maybe we should put them." Fuck all that. Yeah. So. It's just been an amazing uh, evening 
talking to you today and hearing these stories. And I just want to, before Dave takes us out, thank you very much for this. And I just, I'm just making the point that you guys did it in like zip. It was that fast. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those five, seven records, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, I failed math class. Uh, <laughs> dropped out too, just so I could play rock and roll. And yeah. thank you, Neil. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Jason. Appreciate it, man. And, and it's, you know, over the years and hearing people, the different stories and how we touch people still amazes me. And that's why when I got that Hall of Fame award, I thank the fans because believe me, without them, we would have been nothing. And even though everybody was so down on us, all the major record companies, the organic original Alice Cooper, the group, people got it. And what we tried to convey, there was an audience for it and a massive audience. And uh, we're very thankful for that. You know, we're cocky, we're badass, but we understand where it all comes from. And, and I appreciate your acknowledgement of that too, Jason. It's yeah. very cool. Let me, let me just second that and I'll let you go, Neil. Uh, you know, as Jason said, short amount of time, gave us a bunch of classic records that we still listen to to this day. I held up a few during this uh, conversation today. Uh, we thank you for the music, the memories, uh, and thank you for your time today. I mean, what a pleasure. You're one of our heroes and uh, we're just thrilled that you were uh, willing to be on our show today. So thank you for all that. On behalf well, you're very of well. On behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave Klesner with the legendary Neil Smith on the Talk Louder podcast. 